everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over eight years ago. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And I'm super excited to introduce you today to a lady who gets things Done. I love it when people see a need that's out there, and instead of saying, why doesn't somebody do this, they say, I'm going to do this. I'd like you to meet Allison Primo. She's a 35-year-old mother to her 9-year-old son, and she's currently creeping up, as she says, on three years of sobriety. She's a certified professional recovery and life coach, known as the Sober Mom Coach. She helps mothers ditch the booze, become a more present parent, and get out of the mom guilt cycle. Allison is also the founder of of the Sober Mom Tribe. Through her struggles and lack of connection with other sober moms, she created Sober Mom Tribe in July of 2018. She says it's one thing to be sober, but it's a whole other level of being a sober mom in a culture where wine and motherhood seem to go hand in hand. She's a lover of a good witty mind. She makes the best Parmesan chicken you'll ever have. She loves being able to inspire and help others through her recovery journey. And when she isn't helping others or being a taxi driver to her son, she enjoys reading, blogging, and cooking. She lives in Connecticut, where she enjoys the fall weather that is soon to be upon us all. She says hoodies, hot coffee, and apple picking, and the changing of the leaves are just a few of her favorite things about this time of year. And Allison, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. I am so excited. Um, I have been listening to the Bubble Hour for a long time now, and a lot of my clients have been like, are you on the Bubble Hour yet? And I'm like, no, I'm not on the Bubble Hour yet. So I'm happy to be here. Oh, that's nice. I love that people are just so loyal to the podcasts that have helped them and and they share them with each other. And, you know, yesterday I was just on one of the online groups I'm in. People were sharing their favorite podcasts. And, and I love that there's just this spirit of abundance of that. Whatever we're doing, we're all working together to help one another. It's not like we're fighting over pie, you know, and yeah. <laughs> trying to like get our corner. It's like, it's so expansive and, and just, Oh, it's a beautiful thing. So I'm really glad you're here, and I'm excited to hear about what you're doing over at Sober Mom Tribe. But first, I would like to get to know you a little, so please tell us about you and tell us your story. Sure. Um, this may take a while. So I grew up in Connecticut. Um, I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. You know, my parents were around, but my mother um, is a narcissist. And she, you know, would always make me suppress my feelings. She would make me go to things that I didn't want to do, activities that I didn't want to do, you know, push certain friends on me, even though I really didn't even want those friends. Um, So, yeah, so that's a little backstory of, you know, when I grew up. And then um, I really didn't drink too much through high school. You know, I drank once or twice. Uh, on prom, but that was about it. And then I went to college. I first went to University of Delaware for a year and a half to study elementary education. And about a year into it, I decided that teaching was just not for me. Um, I did not have the patience uh, to handle that many kids in a classroom. 
And so I decided to move back to Connecticut, go to UConn, uh, spend my last three years at UConn. And um, I got a degree in business administration with a concentration in real estate. And during my time in college, you know, I would say, you know, it's out of the norm, which, you know, it shouldn't be. But, you know, binge drank on weekends. I thought blacking out was perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with it. Um, That, you know, there was nothing wrong with waking up with a stranger in your bed, no idea how you got home. And I thought this is all okay because we all laugh it off. It's college. You know, you're experiencing life on your own without being around your parents. So, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And then um, I graduated from UConn. I got my first real job in Rhode Island. So I moved to Rhode Island and this was fully, I was on my own. I didn't know a lot of people in Rhode Island. Um, I didn't have any family in Rhode Island. So it was just me kind of creating a whole new life. So um, my drinking wasn't really an issue. At least I didn't think it was an issue at the time. Um, But then actually I think about it and there was one work trip that I went on to Ohio and it was for a training and I had the night before we had a big meeting, I went out, got so drunk, woke up, and I had was on the verge of missing the bus to get us to the event. So I run downstairs, still in my pajamas, and everybody's like, what are you doing? Like, you know, get ready. So I go back upstairs, get ready, and then, you know, go back downstairs and it's, you know, people laugh about it, but it's not funny. Like that should not be funny. That's actually super embarrassing and so not professional. So I guess, you know, that's a little bit of a a hint of that there was a problem. So I was there for about a year and then I got laid off because that's when the market crashed in 2008. So after that, um, I was collecting unemployment and I really didn't have anything to do. It was the summer and I was playing by the pool, doing whatever I wanted, um, and just being free, going out at night, you know, hanging with people by the pool all day, then going out to the, the night scene in East Greenwich, Rhode Island at night. Um, so it, you know, I didn't at that time, I, you know, I would get hangovers, but it wouldn't really be that bad. And if I did, I'd just sweat it off. I'd go to the gym or I'd just lay by the pool and it, it wouldn't save me. So, you know, during that time of unemployment, things just kind of got, you know, a little off kilter. I started, you know, hooking up with random guys. I started you know, seeking some sort of love, um, very, very attention seeking. Like I, I couldn't sit with being by myself. So I thought I could find that in a guy, um, that didn't work out too well. You know, I went, you know, from relationship to relationship, sometimes the relationship ended because 
I was drinking too much. You know, one of my relationships, uh, we were staying in Newport and I actually, you know, I don't even remember this, but I hooked up with my boyfriend's friend. Um, so pretty bad. And that same night was the night that I left my phone in a bar, uh, the Red Parrot in, in Newport. And, you know, I still kept drinking. I still kept doing whatever I wanted. You know, I just didn't want to sit with myself. So then um, in around Thanksgiving of 2009, I reached out to somebody that I knew in high school, um, and he had actually dated one of my friends. And he was around the area in Connecticut, and we went, you know, we met up. But at that time, I didn't know that he was deep into drugs. And, you know, it was cocaine, it was oxy, um, you know, snorting, suboxone. It was, you know, I didn't know how bad it was, but now looking back, I realized that, you know, I totally enabled him and I did it because I didn't want to be alone. You know, I just wanted somebody there by my side. And through this all, like he's living in Connecticut, I'm living in Rhode Island and he didn't, he lost his, um, he had a great company. uh, He had a great job doing construction. So he had a company car, a company credit card, all that stuff. And he lost it all when he lost his job. So here I was still unemployed, worried more about him than myself and, you know, bringing him, you know, money, buying a TV off of him and then actually bringing him to meetings at a facility where, you know, years down the line, I would be at that same facility doing, you know, detoxing. So, you know, a couple months went by and I got pregnant and he did not want me to have my son. And I, you know, I went against the grain. My mother did not want me to have my son. Um, you know, it was like me against everybody else, I felt like. So here I am at 26 and not really fully understanding the, you know, implications of doing this all on my own. And, you know, once I had him in August of 2010, I, you know, it was so overwhelming. Um, You know, all my family was in Connecticut. You know, I didn't have a lot of friends, like mom friends at all at that age. Um, So it was pretty much just me and him and, you know, a few other friends, you know, coming in and out here and there. So, when he was a little over a year, I got into a serious relationship um, with somebody that I met. And he, you know, he was a great guy. He had a son and he was recently divorced. So he was a big drinker um, and it was just beer. Like he drank beer a lot, but pretty much every night. Um, And at that time, I wasn't a huge drinker. I was more, I think I was just so exhausted from doing all the mom duties, plus working and doing all that stuff 
that I didn't have the energy at night to even put into thinking about wine or having anything to drink. So a couple of years go by and um, my grandmother who basically raised me, she died in April of 2013. And I can remember before going to her funeral, you know, downing a few glasses of wine just to get through it. And I had no idea that they wanted me to speak at the funeral. And I spoke and there was just like tears running down my face. You know, I was shaky. I just, you know, it was so hard to get through. And then, you know, nine months later, I lost my grandfather. So they died within nine months of each other. They both practically raised me. They took me everywhere. They took me in the summer to all these restaurants and bakeries in Connecticut. They took me blueberry picking, strawberry picking, and, you know, all this fun stuff. And here they are. They're gone. And I was so, I, you know, I was so upset. But I didn't think it was that big of a deal at the time. Yes, I was sad, but I didn't realize until years later that that had such a huge effect on me starting to really spiral into my drinking. So after they both died, a couple months after that, my boyfriend broke up with me. And then I just, you know, I really didn't know how to handle with being alone. You know, I'm the type of person who always needed somebody. I was so needy. I was so clingy. And because I just didn't want to be by myself. Um, I didn't want to handle things by myself. And I was so insecure that I just, I couldn't handle it. So in order to take those feelings away, I started drinking nightly. Um, and, you know, it didn't start off too bad at the beginning. It was one glass and then it turned into two and then two turns into three and then it went to the bottle and then I realized that I started having a problem and it was hard for me to stop without feeling some you know physical withdrawal symptoms so this was the first time I tried to get sober I went to my mother's house with my son and we stayed there for a week just to make sure that I'd be okay and I don't recommend that that um, I actually did go to the clinic a day into my detox at my mom's house just to make sure, you know, my vitals were good and everything else. And it was, but I definitely don't recommend that. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, I, was, I said, okay, I'll, I'll take a break for a little bit. Not knowing that like a month later, I would go back to drinking. Um, and it just baffles me. Like I think about it now and I was at a point where I had to detox at my mother's house and here I am thinking a month later that I can moderate. And I remember, you know, that the month later was on mother's day and my mother came down from Connecticut and we went out to eat in Rhode Island and I got a drink and she's like, are you sure you should be doing that? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's just one drink, not a big deal. Um, but that one drink started a whole other, you know, spiral. So through that, through, you know, after that mother's die, until about the next summer, I was, you know, still drinking, still having problems. 
and I, I realized that I needed some other like outside help. Like I couldn't stop drinking on my own. So I went to therapy and the therapist threatened to take my son away. So I was freaked out. I didn't know what I was going to do. I ended up just like getting all her stuff and going to Connecticut to stay with my mom for like a few days just to make sure like nobody was coming to get him. And, you know, we went back, nobody had called the police or the police or CPS. So, you know, I thought everything was fine. So stupid me, you know, I continue to drink and, you know, I didn't really see any consequences yet. So in June of 2015, I ended up taking a leave of absence from the job I had, which was doing, um, I was a senior sales development specialist for a corporate wellness company. And it was a great job. I loved it. There was great people, great perks, great benefits. Um, but I knew that I needed, you know, a little bit of help. And I was just overwhelmed with work, with motherhood, with everything that I couldn't do it on, do it anymore. So did the same thing went to my mother's and in Connecticut and went to Yale, New Haven Hospital, to see if they could help me, you know, detox a bit. I stayed there for a night and I didn't really, I wasn't very honest about my alcohol consumption. Um, so I blamed it more on anxiety. I blamed it on, you know, depression, anxiety, but I didn't know that the alcohol was really contributing even more to those feelings. So the doctor said, you know, all these things. And then he's like, why don't, you know, you live in Rhode Island. There's a uh, Butler hospital has a outpatient program for anxiety. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. Um, so I got discharged the next day. I didn't drink. Um, I was still on my leave of absence, went back to Rhode Island. The program didn't start for another couple of weeks. So I waited, you know, red, red in the summer, didn't, didn't drink until that program. So I did the program, which was an intensive week long um, program to really, I don't know, find ways to get through your anxiety and to know that you're not alone because there was groups of people there and we all discussed our, you know, problems and, you know, there was different courses we would take throughout the day. So after that ended, um, I went to the liquor store to get a bottle of wine because I'm like, all right, let's just celebrate. I'm done with this anxiety program. So, you know, at first, as you know, it just goes, you know, I had one glass two, then three, then the bottle. And then, you know, I went back to work um, and things were fine in the beginning. And then slowly towards, you know, in the middle of 27 or 20, in the middle of 2016, things started really getting out of control. I, um, I just could not deal. I couldn't deal with the anxiety that was so crippling that I would call, I would say that I'm working from home um, that day, or I would call out. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And then it got to the point where it was affecting, you know, my job. 
And even when I did go into work, I would be having a shot or two of vodka driving to work and, you know, sitting through the morning doing, you know, my calls, whatever. And then lunchtime rolls around and I'm going out to the package store to get a bottle of wine to chug a little bit before I went back into work. And then I would leave work, stop at the liquor store and drive home. And this was like 40 minutes away. And I'm always so grateful that I didn't hurt anybody else in this process or myself. You know, driving drunk on that much alcohol, I really don't know how I did it all these years with without any, you know, consequences. So um, I got let go in that summer of 2016. And after that, I really, it was a free-for-all. I, you know, I had no structure. I had no routine. I didn't even have, like, really coworkers to talk through to throughout the day. I had me and my son. And I, you know, I started drinking morning until night. I, you know, basically just took naps. Um, I was not sleeping. I was passing out at 10 o'clock at night, waking up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and then having wine to fall back to sleep because my anxiety was that bad. And then, you know, waking up at 8 o'clock in the morning and starting the process all over again. And it just got to the point where on November 14th of 2016, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was physically and emotionally exhausted. I felt like I was going crazy. Um, I needed help and I needed help desperately. And this was worse than the first two times. And they, you know, they do say like each relapse gets worse and it, it's true. It does. Um, so I ended up calling my mother and I was like, I need help. I need to go to detox or a hospital or something. And she actually found the last bed in, um, a facility in Connecticut and I went there and I detoxed for five days and it was the most, it was humiliating, but also, um, very opening to how this disease works and progresses. Um, you know, I, I didn't come from a bad family. I didn't, you know, I, I, I had, I, had a college degree I had a job I just I just couldn't deal with life and I used alcohol as my crutch to escape from everything everything that I had pushed down for years and years and years I just I I drank it away and then I realized that you can't drink it away like it'll always be there um so while in detox you know that was super hard um I slept most of the time I don't remember a lot of it um but when I got out I was like okay five days later I was like all right what am I supposed to do now and you know as a side note they did want me to continue with 30 days of inpatient treatment but at the time it was uh the Thanksgiving and you know Christmas season and I really just didn't want to be without my son because he is was the only thing that was keeping me going at the time um so I left and I was like, all right, now what, am, now what am I supposed to do? But I knew that was my bottom. And I knew that from this, that point forward, I can never drink again. Not even one, 
not even on special occasions, never. Um, and I knew I also had to take different steps to get a better result. So I um, ended up going to a therapist who actually clicked like right off the bat, and that's so hard to do. Um, so I was so grateful, and I felt like this is a sign that, yes, I'm going to be going on the right path, and things are going to work out. Um, and she, you know, I still go to her to this day. She's amazing, and I do credit a lot of um, my sobriety to her. But she also, the one thing that I didn't like was that she pushed AA a lot. Um, and finally, on day 53, I went to my first AA meeting, and I knew I would be uncomfortable because it is. Um, but I kept going. I went at, to different meetings at different locations, different times, but I just couldn't find my tribe. I, you know, there was a lot of older people in the room and I absolutely love it and their wisdom, but I wanted to be able to connect with other mothers who were going through the same thing. And, um, you know, through that course, I, I stopped going to AA and probably about know, a year, year and a half into my sobriety, I had an interview with Jessica from A Sober Girl's Guide, and we were chatting, and, you know, all of a sudden, I thought about this idea to kind of connect more sober mothers, and I hadn't seen, at the time, I hadn't seen a lot of sober mom presence on social media, and, you know, to be fair, I think that's because I wasn't really digging too deep into it, um, but I decided to start um, Sober Mom Tribe, which has been a huge part of my own recovery, but also others. Um, you know, I felt like uh, so it, there needed to be a place where mothers could come together who either were struggling to stay sober, who were already sober with, you know, multiple years just to be able to share their strengths but also share that yes they too have struggles and you're not alone I think that's the biggest part is knowing that you're not alone and when you finally see others or hear other stories and you're like wow that was me too that's when something clicks and you're like this isn't just me there's nothing wrong with me this is just the way that addiction works um, and it's been, you know, this past year or so with Sober Mom Tribe has, you know, surpassed my wildest dreams. Um, you know, there's 19,000 followers on Instagram. There's about 2,300 people in our support group on Facebook. And, you know, when I get messages saying, like, you have helped me in my journey and I couldn't have done this without you or the other people in the group. It really hits home that I did the right thing. And, you know, I didn't just sit on the sidelines and wait for somebody else to do it. You know, I put it into action and, you know, part of that, I think everything, you know, really does happen for a reason. My background in, you know, business development did really lead me into being able to expand Sober Mom Tribe to what it is today. 
And, you know, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be able to connect all these women today. And I, you know, every day I feel so grateful to not only be, you know, the founder of Silver Mom Tribe, but to be coaching women through, specifically mothers, through their own struggles and own challenges to get to a place where they finally feel free, free from the constant, you know, desire, free from the constant obsession of drinking. Um, And it, you know, it feels good to not, to be doing something that I'm passionate about. I finally feel like I have a purpose in life and that is what lights a fire up within me. That's what keeps me going. Um, And so it, it goes both ways. Like, me helping them, they help me in return. So, That's you know, fantastic. I'm, thanks. And, you know, all my clients, they're, you know, they're wonderful and they're really committed to, you know, staying on the sober path and really working hard to get to that place. Because as you know, in the beginning, it's not easy. It is hard work. Um, there's a lot of healing that you have to go through. There's a lot of habits that you have to break. But once you get past those, you know, roadblocks, you there's, you know, there's that sense of accomplishment and the confidence that you have, and to to realize your worth, to see that you're stronger than you've ever realized. To get to get through some of the obstacles that some of my clients have gone through is absolutely incredible. And I commend their strength. Allison, what's going on for moms today? I mean, there's some parts of motherhood or parenthood that are timeless, you know, the exhaustion and the, the physical yes. and the financial and like some of those, there's, there's some sort of evergreen issues with being a parent. What are some of the particular things that, moms are facing today and why is that leading to this elevated level of alcohol addiction that we're seeing with women do you believe i really think it's because we have to we think we have to juggle everything we're expected to keep a clean house to cook dinner to go to work to take care of the kids and that's so overwhelming. Like we cannot do it all. And, you know, we try to, because we think if we don't do it all, that people are going to see that we're weak and we don't want to be weak. No one wants to be seen as weak. So we think that we have to just keep plugging along and keep doing it so that nobody thinks less of us. But in reality, you know, asking for help and asking for, you know, an hour for somebody to watch your kids so you can work out or so you can go get a manicure is better than you running yourself into the ground and having a breakdown because you just can't do it anymore. And I think, you know, part of that is society. Part of that is, you know, social media to the comparison you're, you're seeing, you know, only the good parts. So you're seeing like, Oh, well this, mother it has her kids perfectly dressed and she always has perfect meals on her Instagram but you're only seeing a snapshot of that you don't know what goes on behind the scenes and I think we 
tend to just look at the highlights and we don't see that, yes, they have their own struggles too. You know, being a parent is hard and no one, no one is perfect at it. There is no such thing as perfect parenting, you know, and we have to give ourselves grace for certain things. We don't make mistakes. Uh, we're, you know, it's just part of life. But the, the best thing that you can really do for your children is to show them and be a role model to them that not drinking and expressing your feelings is, is not weak. It is strength. And I think, you know, at least for me, and, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to growing up, we were so taught to suppress our feelings. And, you know, I took that into adulthood and it got me to this place because I didn't have a healthy way to get those feelings out. So, you know, breaking that cycle for your kids is essential so that they don't have that burden when they get older. Um, and, you know, that's something that I'm continuously learning, too, is, you know, asking my son about his feelings and, you know, talking with him and being patient because those moments really, really matter. And we have to realize that what we're doing today will affect them eventually down the line. Hmm. I'm curious about how this group that you've created, I'm, I'm certain you had certain expectations and hopes and um, beliefs when you started it of what it could become and what it would become. Um, in what ways have those been realized and in what ways has the group surprised you? So it's definitely um, gone way beyond the goals that I had for it or the expectations. Um, I really just started it thinking like, Oh, this, you know, there's going to be a hand, not, not a handful, but like thousands of, you know, women who are struggling, who are scared to talk about it because they don't of the shame. So, you know, as time went on and it, it grew and grew and grew, and then we got to the year mark and then, you know, tens of thousands of followers. Um, well, we're almost at 20,000. It's just, it's so um, refreshing to see that women are showing up and that they're being vulnerable. And that is the really, I believe, the only way to really start the healing process is to release that shame and to realize that there's nothing wrong with you. So having this page and having this space is the first step, I believe, in showing them that they're not alone and they're not broken and that there's nothing wrong with them. And that's what we need. Um, and once more and more people keep talking about their stories, the more, you know, others resonate with it and the more that others start to share their stories. You know, I really think now with Sober Mom Tribe, we're getting to the point where there's a lot more women who are ready to share. You know, I, I post a story a week on the website 
for others to read. And, you know, it's, it's important to have that connection. So this is what the Sober Mom Tribe does. And, you know, I really, the only thing that is missing for me at this point still is meetups and having that in real life connection, because ultimately that's the goal. You know, a lot of women who come to me or are in the Facebook support group, they're, they don't necessarily like AA, but they like the fellowship aspect of it. So, you know, I'm trying to create, you know, meetups going across the country, but it's hard because as mothers, we're juggling it all. So, you know, that's, that's the one thing that, you know, I would, you know, that I do need a little help with is, you know, leading meetups in different states. Um, There have been a few in the past year or so, but definitely not as many as I would like, because that's definitely the one thing that's lacking for a lot of women is that in real life connection. Mm -hmm. I do find though that by starting out with um, internet groups and having some virtual connections, sometimes that gives us the courage to make real life connections, whether it's just realizing, Oh my gosh, I, I think I could walk into a 12 step meeting or maybe I could ask this other person for coffee who I know doesn't drink and maybe we could find out why. Or so sometimes, um, you know, it's the beginning and that's a wonderful thing. And um, even in that way, um, I feel like it's so important to, to at least start with those virtual connections and, and sometimes those other things follow. So that's amazing. Are Absolutely. Your, are your groups uh, closed groups, um, secret yes. groups? Are they anonymous? How does all of that work? Because there's a, quite a variety of things, and I think it's important that people know for sure what they are doing on Facebook because it's really easy to inadvertently um, expose yourself on your regular page if you think you're posting to your group or something. So how does all that work for your group? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the main concerns of, you know, women, they don't want to, you know, come out to everybody on their Facebook feed. So the groups are closed, you know, whatever is said in the group stays in the group. Um, it doesn't show up on your, you know, your personal feed. So uh, nobody else can see that you're in there. Um, and I really think, and I really, too, like if somebody requests to be in the group, there's a couple questions I have to answer. Plus, you know, if it looks a little off, I will take, you know, a double check at their profile just to make sure, you know, the women feel safe because this is their safe place. This is supposed to be a judgment-free zone um, where they can say whatever they'd like to say and get out so that they can, you know, not only share, but also get advice from others who have either been through it or going through it currently. So I want them to feel as safe as possible. Now, your group is specifically about motherhood, but if we pull back a little bit, we can see some more overarching themes that relate to anyone, right? When we talk about things like isolating or the pressures of – sorry, isolating or, or marketing, um, you know, the whole mommy wine culture or uh, the, the cute T-shirts, you know, rosé all day, all that stuff, the body issues. And really, 
I feel like, you know, the thing about motherhood that I remember, and my oldest son is 28, so it's been a while since I went through that (laughs) shift into motherhood, but I really remember feeling really overwhelmed by this new identity. And I think especially for those of us that tend to be more codependent, more, um, uh, more focused on how others see us, anytime we have a big role shift, it can be really a t- almost a terrifying time because we are trying to like, oh my gosh, what's expected of me? How do I meet all these expectations that other people must have right. of me? And so that can be a really vulnerable, hard time. So I'm kind of curious, um, you know, what you see as being the antidote to some of those things that, um, and I'm guessing it's connection because that's really what we're talking about yeah. in your group. Yeah. So in, yeah. what, in what way are those, those aspects of, of um, pain that lead a lot of us to alcohol, how does connection affect those so once, you know, once we start connecting with others and sharing and not isolating, we first, we see that we're not alone in our struggles, you know, and second, we realize that nobody is perfect. Everybody has something going on in their life or had in their life that they don't like to talk about, you know, just in front of everybody. We all have pain. We all have some type of you know, whether it's death, um, you know, whether it's a breakup, there are so many things that cause pain. And that's the key is to really share your story so you can, you know, start the healing process, I think. And, you know, I, I think also that, you know, now we're in a great space. Well, I wouldn't say great, good space, where it's becoming more acceptable to talk about our feelings, to really, you know, put it out there that, you know, we've experienced, you know, something traumatic. And just being able to talk about that in general, I think, is like the first step in the healing process. Hmm. Yeah, it really, it opens the door, doesn't it? Gives us courage and hope. You talked about your relationship with your mother and her being a narcissist and, um, and yet she was there for you. Um, You were able to call her when you needed help. So that to me tells me that, 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 that relationship, you know, it, must be tricky, um, but there's good and there's challenges in it. How has recovery helped you navigate your relationship with your mother and really anyone else in your life that's a complicated relationship? Yeah, you know, the relationship with my mother is super, super complicated. You know, even that day that I called her on November 14th, she, you know, I I leave out this part most of the time. Um, She had said, can't you just wait a few days until you go to your unemployment? I had, I was in the process of my unemployment benefits and I had to go to some meetings and she was like, can't you just wait a couple days until you go to that so you can get your money? And I was like, no, I need help now. This isn't like, you know, I don't care about money at this point. Like I was at my breaking point. And for me, you know, yes, 
you know, I did call her for help. She got me into the facility to detox. But at the end of the day, she, I felt she was more concerned about money than me as a, as her daughter. And that's something that I've always struggled with, with her because, you know, some days she's good. And then other days it's like the complete opposite. And, you know, I did have to live with her for a time. I moved from Rhode Island to Connecticut um, in the same town that I grew up in. And I had to live with her for a little bit until, you know, I found a place and got back on my feet. And while I was super grateful that I was living there and, you know, there's a roof over my head, at the same time, it was just, she's just super controlling. And, you know, I'm my own person. I'm 35 years old like I can make my own decisions like I'm a mother and I also felt like she was trying to be the parent to my to Ben my son instead of the grandparent and that's you know that's really something that I've worked a lot on in therapy and trying to really let it go and forgive and not hold that grudge Um, we are in a little bit of a better place today Um, Since I've moved out, we're not, you know, on top of each other in a house. You know, she can't tell me what to do type of thing. And, you know, I have those boundaries in place to protect myself and to protect my son. Um, You know, she has to text or call if, you know, she wants to come over and, you know, pick up my child. There are certain things that I don't allow anymore. But there's also things that she does that annoy me and frustrate me and go back to the go back to my childhood of her just, you know, wanting to me wanting me to be perfect and just constantly going for perfection. And I've learned to just kind of compartmentalize however that word is, to the back <laughs> of my mind and let it go. Um, and just not not even, you know, not even let it start that anger with inside me. And that's part of it. You know, she knows what buttons, buttons to press, where I'm going to, you know, kind of that anger is going to come out. And, you know, it's, it's gotten so much better. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for my therapist and being able to, help me through that, but, you know, also myself and sticking with um, the boundaries and realizing, you know, that there are certain things that she does that just crosses a line. Um, But, you know, at the same time with other relationships too, I've, I've learned that, you know, not everybody's going to stick around when you get sober and that's okay. Um, you know, we all go through different stages in life and I'm at the stage where, you know, I'm not going out all the time. I don't want to go to a bar. And, you know, a lot of my friends at that time, that's, they weren't mothers yet either. Um, so they, you know, I lost their friendship, but that's okay. Um, I've accepted it and just replaced it with other friendships, um, that are genuine and real and, actually, you know, make me live up to my potential, Um, you know, people that actually motivate me and push me. 
I love that because I do think that, you know, losing a, the, a shift in friendships creates an opportunity, creates space for better relationships with other people that you right. choose and not just, um, I don't know, sometimes when, I, when our addiction is picking our friends for us, it doesn't really right. have our best interest at heart. Right. And sometimes yeah. if we are operating in that codependent kind of way of, if I like you, no, if you like me, then I like you, <laughs> you know, right, like, right, right. Um, what do you want? What do you want me to be? How can I, right. so when we, it really does, oh, we can really start having some really real relationships that we engage in on a whole new level and, and bring our full selves to. And I, I love that opportunity. Allison, I do want to ask you to clarify one thing you were talking about um, when you were staying with your mom at one point when you were detoxing, and you said you don't recommend that, that you don't, you said you, um, that you didn't recommend doing that. And tell me what you meant by that. Do, do you mean that you don't recommend unsupervised detox or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't recommend if you are physically dependent on a substance to even, you know, yes, be present with somebody else, um, but don't you know, don't get to the point where you're super uncomfortable because there are, you know, things that they can do in a detox to make you more comfortable. I mean, it's not, it's a hell of a process, but it doesn't have to be, you know, as bad as it is if you did it completely on your own. Mm-hmm. And that, you and know, that's it, something, that, sorry, go ahead. And, you know, I think that's another common misconception is that alcohol withdrawal isn't that serious, but it actually is. Um, and that's some of the things that I like to drive across, too, when people are in the, you know, the, the Facebook group. And if they're dependent on the substance, I always, always recommend medical professional help because it is, you know, alcohol withdrawal and benzo withdrawal is the, the only two drugs that you can die from. So if you're drinking to the point where, you know, you're going in withdrawal and you're having shakes and tremors and all that other stuff, then it's it's best to, you know, get help from a medical professional. I'm glad you mentioned that because we haven't talked about it on this show for a long time. And it's been literally years since we did a special episode on pause, which is post acute withdrawal syndrome. And you are absolutely right that um, people underestimate, alcohol. I mean, we tend to think of heroin as being, you know, the most dramatic detox, but um, I mean, you feel pretty darn awful on an opiate withdrawal, don't get me wrong. But the the two that are deadly are alcohol withdrawal and benzodiazepines, as you mentioned. And I believe that that has a lot to do with blood pressure. And um, uh, you're right that, you know, for someone who is sort of, well, I, I, definitely can't give medical advice. I'm not qualified for that, but I definitely encourage people to look into that and that someone right. is drink, that's drinking super heavily really should have right. a supervised detox. And those facilities right. are right. there. Those facilities are there. Right. So I'm glad you mentioned exactly. that. Thank you. Because it is so serious. And, um, you know, the world isn't going to take it as seriously yet as they need to. And so we have to take it seriously. We have to take ourselves seriously. This is our life that we're talking about. Absolutely. And, yeah. So our hour has just whizzed by as usual. And before I let you go, I just want you to take a moment and tell me how people can find you, how they can get involved in your projects and, you know, all the, all the places, all the things, all the places. Absolutely. So 
You can find me on Instagram at Allie's Wicked Sober or for um, coaching, it's at Sober Mom Coach. For Sober Mom Tribe, it is at Sober Mom Tribe. And then also on for the Facebook groups for Sober Mom Tribe, it is, if you type in Sober Mom Tribe Support Group, it'll pop right up. And there's a couple questions that you have to answer and you know, I'll accept you in. And then also we have a website. So the website includes, you know, inspiring stories and resources and merchandise. And, you know, there's a little bit about the coaching on there and, you know, just news articles, things in the news, that kind of stuff. So I would definitely, you know, if you're listening to this right now and you're questioning your relationship with alcohol, you know, and you're a mother, I would definitely take a look, definitely, you know, take a look at the stories and see that you're not alone. Oh, that's great. And I guess before I let you go, just, I feel like, I don't know, sometimes I just get this feeling that somebody's going to be hearing this that just really needs to hear those, you know, the magical right. words or something that just yeah. needs a shot in the arm on a rough day. And uh, what do you say to that person who's listening to that right now? that you can do it. You know, there is, there is no failure. The only time there's failure is when you stop. So, you know, resilience is the key, you know, look how it took me a couple of years to finally get it, to finally get it that I needed help and I could never have alcohol ever again. And you really have to just stick with it. And I know it's hard and I know you want to beat yourself up and say that, you know, you're, you're just a failure, but you're not, you're sticking with it and you just have to keep going and don't give up hope. You know, there are millions of us out there who have been through that struggle and here we are today spreading that hope and awareness and that could be you one day too. Amen. Amen. Allison Primo, thank you so much for being here today and keep shining your light and, uh, and bringing women together. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. That's all for this week. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. Strong, cause you keep it all the time.
Oh, 